Father, what is the cornerstone but that which holds all together? Lord, today, some of our lives are coming apart. We don't know everything. We don't know everybody. But we do know that in this life we have troubles like the sparks that fly up from a fire. We know that in those moments, and in those moments, you alone can hold us together. You alone can contain our fears and our pain. You alone can allow us the feeling of love and acceptance and access to your presence, what it is to be with you. We thank you for that. Christ alone, cornerstone. So Lord, open our hearts and our minds. Allow our spirits to be attuned with yours that we might leave from this place with that which you have prepared from eternity past for us. We pray through Christ our Lord, cornerstone. Amen. Please have a seat. It was about, I, I still, if you've not seen this commercial, you need to, you, you need to look it up. I, it, Hershey, uh, the Hershey Candy Company uh, made this about 40 years ago, so it's, it's old, but it's a Rolo commercial, and it makes me laugh to this day. So it begins, there's a young schoolboy, I suppose he's about 10 years old, and he has his last Rolo. And he's at a zoo, and in the zoo, a group of elephants are walking by, and then there's a baby elephant. And so he says, come here, baby elephant, come here. And he's holding the Rolo out to him, and there's a moment, it's a very tender moment on the camera, where the trunk of the baby elephant and the boy's hand holding the Rolo almost touch, when suddenly the boy backs off, na-na-na-na-na-na, and pops the Rolo in his mouth. Fast forward 20 years, there's a man watching a parade go by when suddenly an elephant trunk touches him on the shoulder and he looks up and then whack! (laughs) (laughs) And the caption reads, be careful what you do with your last Rolo. (laughs) I mean, it's funny because it plays on the notion that an elephant never forgets. But we sure do. We forget all the time. In fact, the Ebbinghaus forgetting curve, I bet you didn't even know there was one of those, is out there and it tells us that within an hour, one hour, before you're finished with dinner or lunch, you will have forgotten 56% of what I am going to tell you. Tomorrow, it'll be 66%, and within six days, it'll be 75%. This is why I never ask anyone to quiz me about my own sermons a week later, because I will have forgotten myself. But we forget so many things. We, we forget what it is to be a dependent child, uh, dependent on older people, and so we make children try to act like adults because we forget. 
We forget what it is to be a teenager struggling one day on top of the world, the next day underneath it, and we tell them, grow up. We forget what it's like to be alone when we're not alone. And so, when we speak with those alone, we are clueless as to the pain that they might feel. And for some of us, as was the case in the church at Ephesus, it may be that we forget what it was to be a non-believer. And so we actually turn other people off to the faith because we expect them to act according to our Christian standards when they've never been exposed to them. We forget. And in our text today, we're told to remember, remember, to recall something because it's vital. You'd open your Bibles to Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. It's a bit of a stretch, but we're going to get through it. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 reads, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember, it says it twice, I think there's something here, that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in His flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in Himself one new man out of the two thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. For in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. So the Apostle Paul wants us to remember something. He says it twice. He wants us to remember first that you were a Gentile. And remember that you were separated from Christ. Now Gentiles is the, it's the Greek word ethnos. We, we know this word because we derive some of our English words straight from it. Ethnicity, ethnic, uh, ethnocentricity, those kinds of things. Ethnos means persons who are united by 
culture, by kinship, by language, by common traditions. In other words, it's a nation or a people, a tribe. The Jews used it when they used it, particularly in the plural uh, form, uh, to refer to non-Jews, the, the nations or the Gentiles. And those were the ones who didn't profess faith in the God of Israel. Now remember that just a few short years ago, the people that the Apostle Paul is writing to were all Gentiles. Uh, and they, these believers, uh, just in their living memory, not even living memory, you know, that time amazes me, doesn't it amaze you? When Barbara and I got here, all these graduates hadn't started either high school or college yet. And now I feel like it was yesterday and you know, the significant milestones they've reached in, their, in their, their lives has occurred during that time. It was in that kind of living memory that they were pagans. They were worshipers of Artemis. They were full out following their own moral code, not the moral code that was informed by the Ten Commandments. They were far from the one and true living uh, God of the Jewish people. They were moved by their own passions. Now this is an amazing, it's an amazing thing as we begin to grow in our understanding because this is a recurring theme in the book of Ephesians. What I'm about to say, it does, it pains me, but we need to know that these kinds of ethnos divisions have plagued humanity since the beginning. The ancient Jews were no better. Do you know the rabbis taught that it was not lawful for a Jew to aid a Gentile woman in giving birth? Because that would be allowing another heathen to come into the world. A common daily prayer for a Jewish man was this, Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who, made, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Now, for those of us who are uh, tempted to stand in judgment of those Jews, hey, I challenge us to examine our own lives. I challenge us to examine our own hearts and to say, are we free from such things? I'll just say this, that we're free only to the degree that we follow Jesus Christ. And Paul summarizes our pre-Christ life in verse 12 with five really rapid hammer blows. He said, you were separate from Christ. I mean, the Jews, at least they had the promise the expectation of the Messiah, the Gentiles had nothing. They were excluded from citizenship in Israel. They were excluded, or that word excluded means aliens. They were aliens to citizenship in Israel. They were estranged from the nation of Israel. There was no connection. They were foreigners, you few synonyms going on here, right? To the covenants of promise. Foreigners, strangers. And that's made its way also into our English language. That's the word xenos. 
which means strange or unfamiliar. That's where we get our word xenophobia from. Uh, here it means stranger. When uh, you read in the Bible, I am a stranger in a strange land. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, that would be xenos. They had no clue. They had no covenant. They were lost. They were, in fact, it says, without hope. And else had no hope in God, no promises to trust in, no hope of God's rescue or salvation or intervention. It is said, I mean, they were so desperate for something, literally, as they carved their idols and as they put them all around their house, as they would carry them in their pockets, that it was said in Athens it was easier to find a God than it was a man. They were everywhere. Well, what does that tell you? It tells you that the heart was desperately trying to fill that void with something, but they were without God in the world. That's the Greek word atheos. Atheist. Now, of course, they weren't atheists in the classic sense of the uh, term. They believed in all kinds of gods. But nevertheless, this is what... Paul says here, they were atheos. They did not have a relationship with God. And the words also used, of course, today of those who deny God. I mean, imagine what it was like. Some of us can. Some of us, it's far away. Some of it's very near. But to be without God, the, the void that exists there. I mean, maybe you've felt like that all by yourself in a in a frightening world. But I want you to take hope because those five hammer blows, separate, foreigners, without hope, without God, are followed by four wonders that Christ has accomplished for us. Number one, He broke down the wall of hostility. He, number two, abolished the law. Number three, He created a new humanity. And then number four, he reconciled that humanity to himself. First, he tore down the wall. Now, you've got to understand, there's a lot of metaphor in the Bible, and this is a metaphor, but the metaphor reaches back to a truth. If you went to the temple in Jerusalem, even if you were a believing Gentile, even if you had dedicated your life to the Lord God Almighty of Israel, attached yourself to his law and followed it through, you could not pass a wall. And on this wall it was inscribed, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Now listen to this. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Even believing Gentiles could not go past a certain point in the temple. He abolished that wall. Second, he abolished the law. Not in the sense that the law was uh, bad or, or, or you know, not good and needed to be replaced, but in the sense that there is something now that has superseded the law. There's something above the law, and I hope you understand this, because Christians are on, ever 
and always on a collision course with the world because Jesus demands certain things. Simple, though. Do you know what he demands? All. (laughs) He demands your total allegiance. He demands your complete loyalty. He demands everything about you, all of your fidelity, all of your integrity, everything is and belongs to Jesus Christ. The world says, no, 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 no. You need to bow to my science. You need to bow to my ideology. You need to bow to my politics, to my worldview. You see, when people take control, which is what people are apt to do, they don't like it when somebody out there says, I, I'm sorry, I have a higher authority than you. <laughs> Doesn't go over well with the world. But we have to understand that if we see anything greater than Jesus Christ and His binding power that unifies in our life, then we do not understand the power of Christ. We are dealing with some sort of shadow, perhaps. We're dealing with an image, some sort of poor representation, but we are not dealing with the Christ, the Son of God. Third, he created a new humanity. This is uh, just an amazing, an amazing thing. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, dividing uh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law and its commandments and regulations. His purpose. You ever wonder about what the purposes of God are? There are a few places in Scripture that literally tell you his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. Christ, the Prince of Peace, became our peace. He spoke peace to us. And in himself, he united Gentile and Jew into a single people. The word there is, Anthropos. I'm only using the words that have crept their way into English because you'll recognize them. Anthropos is where we get our word anthropology from. And all it means, it's not a word that means man in the sense of uh, gender. It's not masculine. It's not feminine. It just means human, human being. And he did that so that that new Humanity might be reconciled to God. And in this, he says in 16 through 18, and in this body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him... We both have access to the Father by one Spirit. This word reconcile, I I love. It comes from a root that means to exchange. I mean, and quite literally, it's this notion of exchanging hostility that two parties have for uh, peace. In other words, they reconcile with one another. And now instead of dodging each other in the hallways 
or as it relates to nation states shooting missiles at one another or whatever, they dialogue, they, they sit and they talk. And because we've been reconciled with God, we now have a relationship with him that we didn't previously have. In fact, we have access. This word access is a, a, a beautiful word. It means to usher or to bring someone in into a, another's presence, to come near, to approach. And this term, every time it's used in the New Testament, every single time it's used in the New Testament, is used as believers having access to God. Now you need to uh, see this in the ancient Near East context. And that is this, if you, if you, if you go back to, say, Esther... You understand that Queen Esther could not enter the king's presence without permission. Why? He might kill her. It, and we just go, that's, that's nonsense. It's not nonsense. Even Nehemiah was afraid to go before the king because he looked sad. Well, Nehemiah was a big element in the kingdom. He was not some small person. Where do you think don't kill the messenger came from? You think that's not a real thing? You come bringing bad tidings to the king and you're going to lose your head. We we don't we have 2000 years of Christian history. We don't see the world in those kinds of terms anymore. But you have to understand this word access is an amazing thing, and it's not simply that we have access. Let me explain that. I mean, Hebrews 4.16 says this, Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The basis for that access is in the Spirit. You see that in verse 18. To whom we have access, none other than the Father. That's also in verse 18. We're not left to deal with lesser beings. We don't have to pray to mediators or through mediators in order to get to God the Father. He is there. We find in 1 Timothy 2.5 that Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and humankind. Now here's going back to this word access. He's not some kind of a bridge, right, through which all prayers and messages must pass. That's not what it means. Do you know what it means? It means, and this word access, this is what it means. Jesus Christ escorts you and me into the very presence of the Father. In other words, He brings us to Him so that we might sit, you and I might sit and have a conversation with God, one on one. It's an amazing thing that we're ushered into the very presence of the Father and we sit and we talk. Verse 19 tells us some of the privileges that result from this work of Christ. It says, Consequently, you are no longer xenos. Okay, you're no longer foreigners. You're no longer aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Now, rather than being uh, aliens and non-citizens, we're, we now belong 
uh, to the kingdom. You know, citizens in most countries, they don't even think about it. I mean, of course I'm a citizen. I was born there. But you know, in Rome, that's not the way it worked. You could be a resident in Rome and never be a citizen. You could be born in Rome and not be a citizen. Citizenship was granted to a, a few. It was uh, remarkable that the Apostle Paul had that. And when we begin to understand this notion that being brought into citizenship into God's kingdom, we were not naturalized. For lack of a better word, we were supernaturalized. We were brought fully in as citizens of that kingdom. We did not become residents of the kingdom, but we are citizens. And what does that make us? The beautiful word here, house and household. Same word, depends on the context and the forms of it. But regardless, there's two things that it means that are that's important to us. First is that we are people. We are a people who are related by kinship and form a closely knit group. Let me say it another way. We're in the same family. We are part of the same family. And we understand all of the things, you know, you don't pick your family. You just, just that's just what happens. And so you have to, according to the text, we even read it this morning, you have to love each other. And they have to love you. And sometimes it's a little more complicated because, listen, some of us come from different, well, we all come from different backgrounds. Some of us come from hard backgrounds. Some of us are wounded. Some of us are hurting. Some of us are strong. Some are weak. We don't choose those things, but we are responsible as a body to meet the needs that are in the body. And we are called to be unified because we are called to love. This is the Father's family. The God of the universe has called us together and He has one prime directive. The prime directive is love one another. And we learn to love in the family. And in doing that, we begin to form a microcosm of what God's love on this world looks like. And we are family and we're joined to each other. But then he takes it a step further. I I mean, he really takes it another step further, which is even more staggering than citizenship more staggering than being a part of the same family but he moves this word now from being a part of a household to being a part of a house itself a building paul stott moves to this notion when he says in 20 through 21 built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. A holy temple in the Lord. This structure has three 
vital components, right? The foundation, the apostles, the prophets. The teaching of the apostles and the, the prophets, which we find in what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament, provide us a firm foundation. I, uh, when one of my graduations I attended, it wasn't my graduation, but a graduation at uh, Dallas Seminary, J. Vernon uh, McGee spoke, and his program always opened with the same song, and it was this, How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. This foundation is the divine revelation that has come to us. And the cornerstone of it, now this is the amazing thing, right? The apostles and the prophets, they're found in here, the word of God. But the cornerstone, and this is fixed. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. We read it. We explain. We absorb. We devote. We have our life that comes through this. But the true building that is being built is Jesus Christ as the cornerstone because you and I are the real building. And that building just isn't, it's not this. It's not a church in the sense of a building. It's the church in the sense of you and I. And the cornerstone is Jesus. Jesus is the one who called the prophets. He is the one who called the apostles. He taught them, he commissioned them to pass on this message to us. And this cornerstone can be seen, and it doesn't matter which way you see it, but this word can be the, the cornermost stone in a building, the thing that, you know, it holds it up. It could also be seen as the keystone in the top of an ark. But either way, Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen says, See, I lay in Zion a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation, the one who trusts will never be dismayed. Think, think of what the Apostle Paul is saying. And that is the temple, which we know from other texts is a shadow of the things that are in heaven ceases to be a building of stone and now consists of you and me and billions of other Christians living and dead. 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5 speaks of this as, as well. And it's joined together to form a coherent entity. It's a place where God lives and dwells. And now, as I've even already said, we discover the divine purpose for both the universal church and this body in verse 22, and in him, you too, you as well, that he's talking to us here, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. 
You and I were never meant to be alone. In any context, except for perhaps a spiritual discipline for a set time. We are built together. First Peter says that we are living stones. We're living stones joined together. You can't be joined together if you've separated yourself. God desires us all to be a part of His holy temple. And He means that not simply in that the church universal, which of course you are. He also means that here. That's why he also says, and forsake not the gathering of yourselves together. Why? Because you're part of the temple where God lives. The answer to that question as to why is that his purpose brings us to a sense of reverence and awe, really. And that's because God wants you and me to dwell now, now where he dwells. God dwelt in the tabernacle in the wilderness. He dwelt in Solomon's temple. And he did that with great power and glory, but now he does that in us. And of course the plea is this, come, be a part of the holy temple which God will dwell in by His Spirit. It is God's desire. The text says that this is God's purpose for you here. We are the temple of God. We are outposts of God's glory and presence in every community in a lost and a dying world. And without you and others like you, the church is absent except for God's people here. Come to Christ. Come to His family. Be a part of His dwelling place. Father, we are intensely grateful, especially when we remember what it was to be without You. Our hearts are are moved by the notion that you gave us citizenship, you put us in a family, you've made us, you've given us a foundation which is unshakable. And you're turning us, us, into a dwelling for you by your Holy Spirit. We thank you. We praise you for who you are and all that you've done through Christ our Lord. Amen.